It's like backstage, but there's no stage. It's the standby for places green room. Welcome to In the Green Room. If you're going in with this is my game plan, this is what I'm gonna do, and and not allowing that space for a project to breathe, you're shutting out all these cool ideas that could be coming in. Absolutely. But, and I feel like with kids theater, you know, kids do look to you and they're like, oh, you have the answers. I don't always have the answers and I'm not going to because you might have the answers. And I feel like that's the cool empowering thing about working with kids is they want you to have the answers, but if you don't, they're challenged enough to be like, okay, well then I can figure it out. And I, that's something I've really loved working with kids in kids theater is you can challenge them in that way. And they're like, yeah, I went home and thought about that. And that, yeah, I think I have an idea of where, where that fits in. And that's really fun. But I do think we've all had those directors at some point where you couldn't say anything right. You know what I mean? Like your, your interpretation, your choices you're making as an actor just were never right. And I feel like that's something, I guess, maybe since I had that as a younger actor, that's what I've like devoted my life to not be. (laughs) Because I feel like that's part of the collaboration part of doing theater is that everyone kind of gets to have a voice in the creation of what you're doing. Also working with adult actors, like I want to give everyone some leeway to like do their thing. You guys are all professionals. You guys have been doing this a long time. So I'm not going to tell you what to do. Like I want to see what you do and where you grow and how we can help mold this together. So one note that really stuck with me when I was doing, you know, my own rehearsing was Mm -hmm. you said, go through your character, especially when you're multiple characters it can be hard to sometimes in such a quick rehearsal process really find their path and what they're there to do and I remember you emailed me and you said go through your characters and just establish what their direct role is to Alice am I am I there to derail her journey am I there to provide a lesson am I there as support what exactly is your role to her and it sounds so simple, but it it's so true. The whole thing is a dream for her. Mm-hmm. So all of these characters, yes, they have their own personalities and motivations, but they are there as an offshoot of Alice and her mind. Yeah. Well, and something that came up too with like Taylor working on the White Rabbit and weirdly enough, Carol, which we all decided later, like, wow, yeah, this is definitely... Carol coming in because like his whole thing in that opening scene is he's teaching her about chess and how to correctly move throughout the chessboard and and the white rabbit always inserts himself when she needs to get somewhere and she needs to get there quickly and I always found that really fascinating because I didn't double cast that purposely at all that actually is just by haps that worked out that way but I think that that ended up being a really cool way to double him because those characters are the real world and dream world versions of each other. So I found that really fascinating to like watch what he did with that. But yeah, I mean, the answer to his question was super easy. It's always to get her back on the right path where she needs to go next. And I find that, yeah, definitely super fascinating. I said it in a rehearsal and I truly mean it. You could do, I'm sure that's happened. You could do a whole dissertation on Alice in Wonderland. There's so much meat to it. And it sounds like you're saying, yeah, kids theater does it. And it feels so, it really can be done at surface value. But if you dig deep into this, it's really fascinating. Did you look into it all? I'm I'm just going with uh, what you said about the white rabbit leading her. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm thinking back to like intro to psychology one or psychology 101. And- I don't even want to, I don't want to drop this on you that I have a psych degree. But you're I'm- kidding me. <laughs> no. 
Jungian. It, like, yeah, the, the yeah. Characters are very uh, Jungian archetypes in a way. Oh yeah, yeah. Did you for sure? Did you read into that at all? I like, did it actually, which I do. I I literally kept the script and I kept my sound design because I was like. I'm going to use this someday. Um, yeah. <laughs> I just like, kept it. Um, definitely something I've definitely popped out my psychology books as I've done shows. And I'm surprised I didn't do it for this one, honestly, because, wow. It seems like you innately knew in a way. Yeah. It's funny because my, I mean, my two degrees are in theater and psychology and I get that question a lot. They're like, do you use your psych- psychology degree and your, what you do? And I'm like, I mean, even working with children, like relationally, developmentally, yeah, absolutely. Watching family dynamics, birth order. Yeah. <laughs> what does this kid need? Your middle child? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Wild <child. laughs> I don't know. Did you notice any differences between directing this time, especially just using voices and the previous time that you had directed? Alice. Yeah, I mean, the previous time was it was like an MTI Alice in Wonderland Jr. kind of thing, more based on the movie. The thing I liked about this adaptation, and I'm sure this information will be somewhere, but it's from 1915. It was an adaptation done in Chicago that Lewis Carroll and his writing partner wrote together based on the Looking Glass book. And I think because it is Lewis Carroll, I feel like that's why it feels so true and succinct and really kind of gets into like the nitty gritty where I feel like, you know, a junior version of a show or like a Disney version kind of cuts out some of the things that you don't get some of those darker scenes even. Cause I feel like even, I mean, this one, you don't have the flower scene, but you don't, I don't think you get like the mock turtle Griffin scene in the Disney version. There's like some sort of like the lobster scene, but, but which is similar, but it's not, it's not the level that this one is. And then you don't get the red and white queen dynamic, which is, I think, super fascinating. Some of the funniest scenes in the show, honestly. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't want to say watered down, but it's definitely, it, the old, the other version I did was more the Disney version. Very similar to the movie. Whereas this is more true to the book, which I definitely enjoy adaptations that are an offshoot of a book, <laughs> for sure. I mean, and obviously working with, Actors who are professionals is different than working with summer camp kids who just decided to audition for a show. Obviously, all have their value. I mean, I love the summer camp kid who's never done theater before who gets cast in a lead and like shines. That just, I love that. Like, that's, my- that's like my favorite thing. And then they go home and you get an email from their mom that's like, there's a lead in Annie now. And I'm like, yeah, they are. I know. Kid that comes <laughs> nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a different. Um, Different dynamic, but I definitely enjoyed this. I mean, since I have been directing mostly kids over the past six years, it's always a nice little treat when I can just say things to adult actors and they just receive and digest. And it's just fun to be able just to speak the language that I speak myself. But working with kid actors just in general, I mean, it is fun to watch their process and watch them finally understand information. Like my favorite thing is when you teach an eight-year-old how to be grounded and then you can just say that word and they know what it means. And you're like, yes, that's exactly what we need. <laughs> I will adhere forever that kids in the arts are some of the smartest kids you'll ever meet, regardless of their academic status. <laughs> they just understand and process in a completely different way. And I I find I, it fascinating. Completely, completely in agreement with that. Yeah, they're just emotionally on a different level. They have empathetic intelligence. They just really 
they understand in a different way. Than when you said teaching a, an eight-year-old to be grounded and they know what grounded means, my first thought was there are 60-year-olds in the workforce who don't know what it means to be grounded, like to learn something yeah. like that at eight and yeah. comprehend it and be able to really tap into it. That's an invaluable skill that will stay with you for the rest of your life, whether you continue an artistic career or if you you know, engage in the arts as an extracurricular, as an adult, that's something that is going to stay with you no matter what your career is. You know, you can find hundreds of studies on what arts in general do for young people as they continue on with their careers, but like theater in particular, I mean, all of the most successful people that I know from my high school did theater in some capacity, whether they were community focused, they did drama club, they did plays at my church. They're also, they're all the best in whatever their field is. They're the most engaged in their field. Even if they didn't end up passionate, even if they didn't end up being a theater artist, not only are they a patron of the arts and an arts appreciator, which are, even if you don't go into the arts, we need those people. That's the whole point. Um, We need people to be arts patrons, but they are the best at their medical assistant job. They're the best at their publishing house. They're the best teacher in their district. They're the people who are the most engaged because they have skills that they learned from doing theater, you know, accountability, collaboration, empathy. Problem solving. Problem solving, yes. Um, being articulate through reading. I mean, we have kids in our program who are right now in Butte who are just straight up literally like I have dyslexia and they now like have barely struggle with it because of their reading skills are off the charts now. And it's kind of incredible. It taps into all of your different types of skills. You're getting reading, verbal communication. I mean, fine motor skills, gross motor skills, like everything is being tapped by theater. I mean, and I'm always proud of the kids who graduate and they go on. Like I have got kids got all over the place, uh, playwriting majors, theater education, acting majors, all over the place, film majors. I've got a kid at Columbia in Chicago who just graduated. So I'm always proud when those kids like decide, like we've inspired them enough to go off and to do this. And I feel like that's really exciting. But also I want to hear from the kids who weren't doing that. What are you doing? Oh, you're in school for education? Rock on. Like, that's great. And you're going to have skills from our programming that's going to take you on to do great things. And that's really cool, too. So, yeah, I think I think the age old question is how do we get more theater programming in schools? I mean, yeah. And I don't I don't know what that solution is right now, but I'll work on it. <laughs> get back to us. I'll get back to you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you want early access to all of our interviews, subscribe to our Patreon today at patreon.com slash standbyforplaces. The full interview will be available on all podcast streaming platforms this Friday. For more information on our artists, check out our website at standbyforplaces.com.